I'm Kristen Marshand, and this is the Opiongo Line. Tonight, I'm joined by Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormkey. We are all members of the Opiongo Readers Theatre, and we have a Halloween special for you this week. It's entitled The Gravedigger's Tales, and includes five short stories drawn from world literature. The sort of great classic fiction that might even entertain gravediggers themselves looking for something especially creepy, strange, or downright scary on Halloween. At the very least, the first four stories today promise to be pretty scary for us non-gravediggers. But that last one, well, we all have to go to bed tonight. So we didn't want to scare ourselves too badly. So we saved the best for last. It's the kind of story that won't give anybody goosebumps, yet it just might make us all smile. But now, it's on with the show. Our first story was written by Anatole France, a pseudonym for Jacques Anatole Thibault, a French writer born in 1844 and often considered the most piercing satirist of his generation. A classical scholar, religious skeptic, and social reformer, he was also not at all adverse to having some supernatural fun with his pen. Here is one of Anatole France's best short stories, The Mass of Shadows, read by Lynn Stewart. This tale the sacristan of the Church of St. Eulalie at Neuville-Domont told me, as we sat under the arbor of the white horse one fine summer evening, drinking a bottle of old wine to the health of the dead man, now very much at his ease, whom that very morning he had borne to the grave with full honours, beneath a pall powdered with smart silver tears. My poor father, who is dead, it is the sacristan who is speaking, was, in his lifetime, a gravedigger. He was of an agreeable disposition, the result, no doubt, of the calling that he followed, for it has often been pointed out that people who work in cemeteries are of a jovial turn. Death has no terrors for them. They never give it a thought. I, for instance, monsieur, enter a cemetery at night as little perturbed as though it were the arbor of the white horse. And if by chance I meet with a ghost, I don't disturb myself in the least about it, for I reflect that he may just as likely have business of his own to attend to as I. I know the habits of the dead, and I know their character. Indeed, so far as that goes, I know things of which the priests themselves are ignorant. If I were to tell you all that I have seen, you would be astounded. But... A still tongue makes a wise head, and my father, who, all the same delighted in spinning a yarn, did not disclose a twentieth part of what he knew. To make up for this, he often repeated the same stories, and, to my knowledge, he told the story of Catherine Fontaine at least a hundred times. Catherine Fontaine was an old maid whom he well remembered having seen when he was a mere child. I should not be surprised if there were still, perhaps, three old fellows in the district who could remember having heard folks speak of her. She was well-known and of excellent reputation, no poor enough. She lived at the corner of the Rue Nun in the turret which is still to be seen there, and which formed part of an old, half-ruined mansion looking onto the garden of the Ursuline nuns. On that turret can still be traced certain figures and half-obliterated inscriptions. The late curé of St. Eulalie, Monsieur Levasseur, asserted that there are the words in Latin, love is stronger than death, which is to be understood, so he would add, of divine love. Catherine Fontaine lived by herself in this tiny apartment. She was a lace maker. You know, of course, that the lace made in our part of the world was formerly held in high esteem. No one knew anything of her relatives or friends. It was reported that when she was 18 years of age, 
She had loved the young Chevalier d'Aumont-Cléry and had been secretly affianced to him. But decent folk didn't believe a word of it and said it was nothing but a tale concocted because Catherine Fontaine's demeanor was that of a lady rather than that of a working woman. And because, moreover, she possessed beneath her white locks the remains of great beauty. Her expression was sorrowful, and on one finger she wore one of those rings fashioned by the goldsmith into the semblance of two tiny hands clasped together. In former days, folks were accustomed to exchange such rings at their betrothal ceremony. I'm sure you know the sort of thing that I mean. Catherine Fontaine lived a saintly life. She spent a great deal of time in churches, and every morning, whatever might be the weather, she went to assist at the six o'clock mass at St. Eulalie. Now, one December night, while she was in her little chamber, she was awakened by the sound of bells, and nothing doubting that they were ringing for the first mass, the pious woman dressed herself and came downstairs and out into the street. The night was so misty that not even the walls of the houses were visible, and not a ray of light shone from the murky sky. And such was the silence amidst this black darkness that there was not even the sound of a distant dog barking, and a feeling of aloofness from every living creature was perceptible. But Catherine Fontaine knew well every single stone she stepped on, and as she could have found her way to the church with her eyes shut, she reached without difficulty the corner of the Rue aux Nuns and the Rue de la Paroisse, where the timbered house stands with the tree of Jesse carved on one of its massive beams. When she reached this spot, she perceived that the church doors were open and that a great light was streaming out from the wax tapers. She resumed her journey, and when she had passed through the porch, she found herself in the midst of a vast congregation which entirely filled the church. But she did not recognize any of the worshippers and was surprised to observe that all of these people were dressed in velvets and brocades with feathers in their hats, and that they wore swords in the fashion of days gone by. Here were gentlemen who carried tall canes with gold knobs and ladies with lace caps fastened with coronet-shaped cones. Chevaliers of the Order of Saint Louis extended their hands to these ladies, who concealed behind their fans painted faces, of which only the powdered brow and the patch at the corner of the eye were visible. All of them proceeded to take their places without the slightest sound, and as they moved, neither the sound of their footsteps on the pavement nor the rustle of their garments could be heard. The lower places were filled with a crowd of young artisans in brown jackets, dimity breeches, and blue stockings, with their arms around the waists of pretty blushing girls who lowered their eyes. Near the holy water stoops, peasant women in scarlet petticoats and laced bodices, and where they sat upon the ground were as immovable as domestic animals, whilst young lads, standing up behind them, stared out from wide open eyes and twirled their hats round and round on their fingers. All these sorrowful countenances seemed centered irremovably on one and the same thought, at once sweet and sorrowful. On her knees in her accustomed place, Catherine Fontaine saw the priest advance toward the altar, preceded by two servers. She recognized neither priest nor clerks. The mass began. It was a silent mass, during which neither the sound of the moving lips nor the tinkle of the bell was audible. Catherine Fontaine felt that she was under observation in the influence of her mysterious neighbor, and when scarcely turning her head she stole a glance at him, she recognized the young Chevalier d'Aumont-Cléry who had once loved her, and who had been dead for five and forty years. She recognized him by a small mark which he had over the left ear, and above all by the shadow which his long black eyelashes cast upon his cheeks. 
He was dressed in his hunting clothes, scarlet with gold lace. The very clothes he wore that day when he met her in St. Leonard's Wood, begged of her a drink and stole a kiss. He had preserved his youth and good looks. And when he smiled, he still displayed magnificent teeth. Catherine said to him in an undertone, Monseigneur, you who were my friend and to whom in days gone by I gave all that a girl holds most dear, may God keep you in his grace. Oh, that he would at length inspire me with regret for the sin I committed in yielding to you. For it is a fact that, although my hair is white and I approach my end, I have not yet repented of having loved you. But, dear dead friend and noble senior, tell me, who are these folks, habited after the antique fashion, who are here assisting at this silent mass? The Chevalier de Montcleary replied in a voice feebler than a breath, but nonetheless crystal clear, Catherine, these men and women are souls from purgatory, who have grieved God by sinning, as we ourselves sin through love of the creature, but who are not on that account cast off by God, inasmuch as their sin, like ours, was not deliberate. While separated from those whom they loved upon earth, they are purified in the cleansing fires of purgatory. They suffer the pangs of absence, which is for them the most cruel of tortures. They are so unhappy that an angel from heaven takes pity upon their love torment. By the permission of the Most High, for one hour in the night, he reunites each year lover to loved in their parish church, where they are permitted to assist at the mass of shadows, hand clasped in hand. These are the facts. If it has been granted to me to see thee before thy death, Catherine, it is a boon which is bestowed by God's special permission. And Catherine Fontaine answered him, I would die gladly enough, dear dead Lord, if I might recover the beauty that was mine when I gave you to drink in the forest. Whilst they thus conversed under their breath, a very old canon was taking the collection and proffering to the worshippers a great copper dish, wherein they let fall, each in his turn, ancient coins which have long since ceased to pass as current. Ecus of Cislive, Florins, Ducats and Ducatoons, Jacobuses and Rose Nobles, and the pieces fell silently into the dish. When at length it was placed before the chevalier, he dropped into it a louis which made no more sound than had the other pieces of gold and silver. Then the old canon stopped before Catherine Fontaine, who fumbled in her pocket without being able to find a farthing. Being unwilling to allow the dish to pass without an offering from herself, she slipped from her finger the ring which the chevalier had given her the day before his death and cast it into the copper bowl. As the golden ring fell, a sound like the heavy clang of a bell rang out, and on the stroke of this reverberation, the chevalier, the canon, the celebrant, the servers, the ladies and their cavalier, the whole assembly vanished utterly. The candles guttered out, and Catherine Fontaine was left alone in the darkness. Having concluded his narrative after this fashion, the sacristan drank a long draught of wine, remained pensive for a moment, and then resumed his talk in these words. I have told you this tale exactly as my father has told it to me over and over again, and I believe that it is authentic, because it agrees in all respects with what I have observed of the manners and customs peculiar to those who have passed away. I have associated a good deal with the dead ever since my childhood, and I know that they are accustomed to return to what they have loved. It is on this account that the miserly dead wander at night in the neighborhood of the treasures they conceal during their lifetime. They keep a strict watch over their gold, but the trouble they give themselves, far from being of service to them, turns to their disadvantage. 
and it is not a rare thing at all to come upon money buried in the ground on digging in a place haunted by a ghost. In the same way, deceased husbands come by night to harass their wives who have made a second matrimonial venture, and I could easily name several who have kept a better watch over their wives since death than they ever did while living. That sort of thing is blameworthy, for in all fairness the dead have no business to stir up jealousies. Still, I do but tell you what I have observed myself. It is a matter to take into account if one marries a widow. Besides, the tale I have told you is vouchsafed for in the manner following. The morning after that extraordinary night, Catherine Fontaine was discovered dead in her chamber. And the beetle attached to St. Eulalie found in the copper bowl used for the collection a gold ring with two clasped hands. Besides, I'm not the kind of man to make jokes. Suppose we order another bottle of wine. That was Anatole France's The Mass of Shadows, read by Lynn Stewart. Our next gravedigger's tale was written by another Frenchman, Guy de Montpassant, born in 1850, but who died a young man at age 43. Though in his few short productive years as an author, he became one of the world's great masters of the short story. Here is one of his best, The Flayed Hand, read by Mark Wormkey. One evening about eight months ago, I met with some college comrades at the lodgings of our friend Louis R. We drank punch and smoked, talked of literature and art, and made jokes like any other company of young men. Suddenly the door flew open, and one who had been my friend since boyhood burst in like a hurricane. Guess where I come from, he cried. I bet on them a bee, responded one. No, said another, you are too gay. You come from borrowing money, from burying a rich uncle, or from pawning your watch. You are getting sober, cried a third, and as you scented the punch in Louis's room, you came up here to get drunk again. You are all wrong, he replied. I come from P in Normandy, where I have spent eight days, and whence I have brought one of my friends, a great criminal, whom I ask permission to present to you. With these words, he drew from his pocket a long black hand, from which the skin had been stripped. It had been severed at the wrist, its dry and shriveled shape, and the narrow yellowed nails still clinging to the fingers made it frightful to look upon. The muscles, which showed that its first owner had been possessed of great strength, were bound in place by a strip of parchment-like skin. Just fancy, said my friend. The other day they sold the effects of an old sorcerer recently deceased, well known in all the country. Every Saturday night he used to go to witch gatherings on a broomstick. He practiced the white magic and the black, gave blue milk to the cows, and made them wear tails like that of the companions of St. Anthony. The old scoundrel always had a deep affection for this hand, which he said was that of a celebrated criminal executed in 1736 for having thrown his lawful wife head first into a well, for which I do not blame him, and then hanging in the belfry the priest who had married him. After this double exploit, he went away, and during his subsequent career, which was brief but exciting, he robbed twelve travelers, smoked a score of monks in their monastery, and made a seraglio of a convent. But what are you going to do with this horror, we cried. Eh, parbleu, I will make it the handle to my doorbell and frighten my creditors. My friend, said Henry Smith, a big phlegmatic Englishman, I believe that this hand is only a kind of Indian meat preserved by a new process. I advise you to make a bouillon of it. 
Rail not, monsieur, said with the utmost sang-froid, a medical student who was three-quarters drunk. But if you follow my advice, Pierre, you will give this piece of human debris Christian burial, for fear lest its owner should come to demand it. Then, too, this hand has acquired some bad habits, for you know the proverb, who has killed will kill. And who has drank will drink, replied the host, as he poured out a big glass of punch for the student, who emptied it at a draft and slid dead drunk under the table. His sudden dropping out of the company was greeted with a burst of laughter, and Pierre, raising his glass and saluting the hand, cried, I drink to the next visit of thy master. Then the conversation turned upon other subjects, and shortly afterward, each returned to his lodgings. At about two o'clock the next day, as I was passing Pierre's door, I entered and found him reading and smoking. Well, how goes it? said I. Very well, he responded. And your hand? My hand? Did you not see it on the bell pull? I put it there when I returned home last night. But apropos of this, what do you think? Some idiot, doubtless to play a stupid joke on me, came ringing at my door towards midnight. I demanded who was there. But as no one replied, I went back to bed again and to sleep. At this moment, the door opened and the landlord, a fat and extremely impertinent person, entered without saluting us. Sir, said he, I pray you take away immediately that carrion which you have hung on your bell pull. Unless you do this, I shall be compelled to ask you to leave. Sir, responded Pierre with much gravity, you insult a hand which does not merit it. Know you that it belonged to a man of high breeding? The landlord turned on his heel and made his exit without speaking. Pierre followed him, detached the hand, and affixed it to the bell cord hanging in his alcove. That is better, he said. This hand, like the brother all must die of the Trappists, will give my thoughts a serious turn every night before I fall to sleep. At the end of an hour, I left him and returned to my own apartment. I slept badly the following night, was nervous and agitated, and several times awoke with a start. Once I imagined even that a man had broken into my room, and I sprang up and searched the closets and under the bed. Towards six o'clock in the morning, I was commencing to doze at last when a loud knocking at my door made me jump from my couch. It was my friend Pierre's servant, half-dressed, pale and trembling. "'Ah, sir!' cried he, sobbing. "'My poor master! Someone has murdered him!' I dressed myself hastily and ran to Pierre's lodgings. The house was full of people disputing together, and everything was in a commotion. Everyone was talking at the same time, recounting and commenting on the occurrences in all sorts of ways. With great difficulty, I reached the bedroom, made myself known to those guarding the door, and was permitted to enter. Four agents of police were standing in the middle of the apartment, pencils in hand, examining every detail, conferring in low voices, and writing from time to time in their notebooks. Two doctors were in consultation by the bed, on which lay the unconscious form of Pierre. He was not dead, but his face was fixed in an expression of the most awful terror. His eyes were open at their widest, and the dilated pupils seemed to regard fixedly, with unspeakable horror, something unknown and frightful. His hands were clinched. I raised the quilt which covered his body from the chin downward, and saw on his neck, deeply sunk in the flesh, the marks of fingers. Some drops of blood spotted his shirt. At that moment, one thing struck me. 
I chanced to notice that the shriveled hand was no longer attached to the bell cord. The doctors had doubtless removed it to avoid the comments of those entering the chamber where the wounded man lay, because the appearance of this hand was indeed frightful. I did not inquire what had become of it. I now clip from a newspaper of the next day the story of the crime with all the details that the police were able to procure. A frightful attempt was made yesterday on the life of young Monsieur Pierre B., student who belongs to one of the best families in Normandy. He returned home about ten o'clock in the evening and excused his valet Bouvin from further attendance upon him, saying that he felt fatigued and was going to bed. Towards midnight, Bouvin was suddenly awakened by the furious ringing of his master's bell. He was afraid and lighted a lamp and waited. The bell was silent about a minute, then rang again with such vehemence that the domestic, mad with fright, flew from his room to awaken the concierge, who ran to summon the police, and at the end of about fifteen minutes, two policemen forced open the door. A horrible sight met their eyes. The furniture was overturned, giving evidence of a fearful struggle between the victim and his assailant. In the middle of the room, upon his back, his body rigid, with livid face and frightfully dilated eyes, lay motionless young Pierre B., bearing upon his neck the deep imprints of five fingers. Dr. Bourdien was called immediately, and his report says that the aggressor must have been possessed of prodigious strength and had an extraordinarily thin and sinewy hand, because the fingers left in the flesh of the victim five holes like those from a pistol ball and had penetrated until they almost met. There is no clue to the motive of the crime or to its perpetrator. The police are making a thorough investigation. The following appeared in the same newspaper next day. Monsieur Pierre B., the victim of the frightful assault of which we published an account yesterday, has regained consciousness after two hours of the most assiduous care by Dr. Bourdien. His life is not in danger, but it is strongly feared that he has lost his reason. No trace has been found of his assailant. My poor friend was indeed insane. For seven months I visited him daily at the hospital where we had placed him, but he did not recover the light of reason. In his delirium, strange words escaped him, and like all madmen, he had one fixed idea. He believed himself continually pursued by a specter. One day they came for me in haste, saying he was worse, and when I arrived, I found him dying. For two hours he remained very calm, then suddenly, rising from his bed in spite of our efforts, he cried, waving his arms as if a prey to the most awful terror. Take it away! Take it away! It strangles me! Help! Help! Twice he made the circuit of the room, uttering horrible screams, then fell face downward, dead. As he was an orphan, I was charged to take his body to the little village of P in Normandy, where his parents were buried. It was the place from which he had arrived the evening he found us drinking punch in Louis R.'s room when he had presented to us the flayed hand. His body was enclosed in a leaden coffin, and four days afterwards I walked sadly beside the old curé who had given him his first lessons to the little cemetery where they dug his grave. It was a beautiful day, and sunshine from cloudless sky flooded the earth. Birds sang from the blackberry bushes where many a time when we were children we had stolen to eat the fruit. Again, I saw Pierre and myself creeping along behind the hedge and slipping through the gap that we knew so well down at the end of the little plot where they bury the poor. Again, we would return to the house with cheeks and lips black with the juice of the berries we had eaten. I looked at the bushes. They were covered with fruit. Mechanically, I picked some and bore it to my mouth. The curé had opened his breviary and he was muttering his prayers in a low voice. 
I heard at the end of the walk the spades of the gravediggers who were opening the tomb. Suddenly they called out. The curé closed his book and we went to see what they had wished of us. They had found a coffin. In digging, a stroke of the pickaxe had started the cover, and we perceived within a skeleton of unusual stature lying on its back, its hollow eyes seeming yet to menace and defy us. I was troubled, I don't know why, and almost afraid. Hold, cried one of the men, look there. One of the rascal's hands has been severed at the wrist. Ah, here it is, and he picked up from beside the body a huge withered hand and held it out to us. See, cried the other laughing, see how he glares at you as if he would spring at your throat and make you give him back his hand. Go, said the curé, leave the dead in peace and close the coffin. We will make poor Pierre's grave elsewhere. The next day, all was finished, and I returned to Paris after having left 50 francs with the old curé for masses to be said for the repose of the soul of him whose sepulchre we had troubled. That was The Flayed Hand by Guy de Montpassant, read by Mark Wormkey. Our next gravedigger's tale comes from the pen of Algernon Blackwood, a name synonymous with ghost stories and the supernatural. Born in England in 1869, he traveled far and wide, including a stint in Canada, where he worked as a dairy farmer. Primarily a working journalist, he also wrote classic ghost stories, plays, and children's literature. Here is one of his best, A Woman's Ghost Story, read by Kathy Chepesky. Yes, she said from her seat in the dark corner. I'll tell you an experience if you care to listen. And what's more, I'll tell it briefly, without trimmings. I mean, without unessentials. That's a thing storytellers never do, you know, she laughed. They drag in all the unessentials and leave their listeners to disentangle. But I'll give you just the essentials, and you can make of it what you please. But on one condition, that at the end you ask no questions, because I can't explain it and have no wish to. We agreed we were all serious. After listening to a dozen prolix stories from people who merely wished to talk but had nothing to tell, we wanted essentials. In those days, she began, feeling from the quality of our silence that we were with her, in those days I was interested in psychic things and had arranged to sit up alone in a haunted house in the middle of London. It was a cheap and dingy lodging house in a mean street, unfurnished, I had already made a preliminary examination in daylight that afternoon, and the keys from the caretaker, who lived next door, were in my pocket. The story was a good one, satisfied me at any rate, that it was worth investigating, and I won't worry you with details as to the woman's murder and all the tiresome elaboration as to why the place was alive. Enough that it was. I was a good deal bored, therefore, to see a man whom I took to be the talkative old caretaker waiting for me on the steps when I went in at 11 p.m., for I had sufficiently explained that I wished to be there alone for the night. I wished to show you the room, he mumbled. And, of course, I couldn't exactly refuse, having tipped him for the temporary loan of a chair and table. Come in, then, and let's be quick, I said. 
We went in, he shuffling after me through the unlighted hall up to the first floor where the murder had taken place, and I prepared myself to hear his inevitable account before turning him out with the half-crown his persistence had earned. After lighting the gas, I sat down in the armchair he had provided, a faded, plush, brown armchair, and turned for the first time to face him and get through with the performance as quickly as possible. And it was in that instant I got my first shock. The man was not the caretaker. It was not the old fool, Carrie, I had interviewed earlier in the day and made my plans with. My heart gave a horrid jump. Now who are you, pray, I said. You're not Carrie, the man I arranged with this afternoon. Who are you? I felt uncomfortable, as you may imagine. I was a psychical researcher and a young woman of new tendencies and proud of my liberty, but I did not care to find myself in an empty house with a stranger. Something of my confidence left me. Confidence with women, you know, is all humbug after a certain point. Or perhaps you don't know, for most of you are men. But anyhow, my pluck ebbed in a quick rush and I felt afraid. Who are you? I repeated quickly and nervously. The fellow was well-dressed, youngish and good-looking, but with a face of great sadness. I myself was barely thirty. I am giving you essentials or I would not mention it. Out of quite ordinary things comes this story. I think that's why it has value. No, he said. I'm the man who was frightened to death. His voice and his words ran through me like a knife and I felt ready to drop. In my pocket was the book I had bought to make notes in. I felt the pencil sticking in the socket. I felt, too, the extra warm things I had put on to sit up in as no bed or sofa was available. A hundred things dashed through my mind, foolishly and without sequence or meaning, as the way is when one is really frightened. Unessentials leaped up and puzzled me, and I thought of what the papers might say if it came out and what my smart brother-in-law would think, and whether it would be told that I had cigarettes in my pocket and was a free thinker. The man who was frightened to death, I repeated aghast. That's me, he said stupidly. I stared at him just as you would have done, any one of you men now listening to me, and felt my life ebbing and flowing like a sort of hot fluid. You needn't laugh. That's how I felt. Small things, you know, touch the mind with great earnestness when terror is there. Real terror. But I might have been at a middle-class tea party for all the ideas I had. They were so ordinary. But I thought you were the caretaker I tipped this afternoon to let me sleep here, I gasped. Did, did Carrie send you to meet me? No he replied in a voice that touched my boots somehow. I am the man who was frightened to death. And what is more, I am frightened now. So am I, I managed to utter, speaking instinctively. I'm simply terrified. Yes, he replied in that same odd voice that seemed to sound within me. But you are still in the flesh, and I am not. I felt the need for vigorous self-assertion. I stood up in that empty, unfurnished room, digging the nails into my palms and clenching my teeth. I was determined to assert my individuality and my courage as a new woman and a free soul. 
You mean to say you are not in the flesh, I gasped. What in the world are you talking about? The silence of the night swallowed up my voice. For the first time I realized that darkness was over the city, that dust lay upon the stairs, that the floor above was untenanted and the floor below empty. I was alone in an unoccupied and haunted house, unprotected and a woman. I chilled. I heard the wind round the house and knew the stars were hidden. My thoughts rushed to policemen and omnibuses and everything that was useful and comforting. I suddenly realized what a fool I was to come to such a house alone. I was icily afraid. I thought the end of my life had come. I was an utter fool to go in for psychical research when I had not the necessary nerve. Good God, I gasped. If you're not Carrie, the man I arranged with, who are you? I was really stiff with terror. The man moved slowly towards me across the empty room. I held out my arm to stop him, getting up out of my chair at the same moment, and he came to a halt just opposite to me, a smile on his worn, sad face. I told you who I am, he repeated quietly with a sigh, looking at me with the saddest eyes I have ever seen, and I am frightened still. By this time, I was convinced that I was entertaining either a rogue or a madman, and I cursed my stupidity in bringing the man in without having seen his face. My mind was quickly made up, and I knew what to do. Ghosts and psychic phenomena flew to the wind. If I angered the creature, my life might pay the price. I must humor him till I got to the door, and then raced for the street. I stood bolt upright and faced him. We were about of a height, and I was a strong, athletic woman who played hockey in winter and climbed Alps in summer. My hand itched for a stick, but I had none. Now, of course, I remember, I said with a sort of stiff smile that was very hard to force. Now I remember your case and the wonderful way you behaved. The man stared at me stupidly, turning his head to watch me as I backed more and more quickly to the door. But when his face broke into a smile, I could control myself no longer. I reached the door in a run and shot out onto the landing. Like a fool, I turned the wrong way and stumbled over the stairs leading to the next story. But it was too late to change. The man was after me, I was sure, though no sound of footsteps came. And I dashed up the next flight, tearing my skirt and banging my ribs in the darkness and rushed headlong into the first room I came to. Luckily, the door stood ajar, and still more fortunate, there was a key in the lock. In a second, I had slammed the door, flung my whole weight against it, and turned the key. I was safe, but my heart was beating like a drum. A second later, it seemed to stop altogether, for I saw that there was someone else in the room besides myself. A man's figure stood between me and the windows, where the street lamps gave just enough light to outline his shape against the glass. I'm a plucky woman, you know, for even then I didn't give up hope, but I may tell you that I have never felt so vilely frightened in all my born days. I had locked myself in with him. The man leaned against the window, watching me where I lay in a collapsed heap upon the floor. So, there were two men in the house with me, I reflected, 
Perhaps other rooms were occupied too. What could it all mean? But as I stared, something changed in the room, or in me, hard to say which, and I realized my mistake, so that my fear, which had so far been physical, at once altered its character and became psychical. I became afraid in my soul instead of in my heart, and I knew immediately who this man was. How in the world did you get up here? I stammered to him across the empty room, amazement momentarily stemming my fear. Now, let me tell you, he began in that odd, faraway voice of his that went down my spine like a knife. I'm in different space, for one thing, and you'd find me in any room you went into. For according to your way of measuring, I'm all over the house. Space is a bodily condition, but I am out of the body and am not affected by space. It's my condition that keeps me here. I want something to change my condition for me, for then I could get away. What I want is sympathy, or really more than sympathy. I want affection. I want love. While he was speaking, I gathered myself slowly upon my feet. I wanted to scream and cry and laugh all at once, but I only succeeded in sighing, for my emotion was exhausted and a numbness was coming over me. I felt for the matches in my pocket and made a movement towards the gas jet. I should be much happier if you didn't light the gas, he said at once, for the vibrations of your light hurt me a good deal. You need not be afraid that I shall injure you. I can't touch your body to begin with, for there's a great gulf fixed, you know, and really this half-light suits me best. Now let me continue what I was trying to say before. You know, so many people have come to this house to see me, and most of them have seen me, and one and all have been terrified. If only... Oh, if only someone would be not terrified, but kind and loving to me. Then, you see, I might be able to change my condition and get away. His voice was so sad that I felt tears start somewhere at the back of my eyes, but fear kept all else in check, and I stood shaking and cold as I listened to him. Who are you then? Of course, Carrie didn't send you. I know now. I managed to utter. My thoughts scattered dreadfully and I could think of nothing to say. I was afraid of a stroke. I know nothing about Carrie or who he is, continued the man quietly. And the name my body had I have forgotten, thank God. But I am the man who was frightened to death in this house ten years ago and I have been frightened ever since and am frightened still. For the succession of cruel and curious people who come to this house to see the ghost and thus keep alive its atmosphere of terror only helps to render my condition worse. If only someone would be kind to me, laugh, speak gently and rationally with me, cry if they like, pity, comfort, soothe me. Anything but come here in curiosity and tremble as you are now doing in that corner. 
Now, madam, won't you take pity on me? His voice rose to a dreadful cry. Won't you step out into the middle of the room and try to love me a little? A horrible laughter came gurgling up in my throat as I heard him, but the sense of pity was stronger than the laughter, and I found myself actually leaving the support of the wall and approaching the center of the floor. By God, he cried, at once straightening up against the window, you have done a kind act. That's the first attempt at sympathy that has been shown me since I died, and I feel better already. In life, you know, I was a misanthrope. Everything went wrong with me, and I came to hate my fellow men so much that I couldn't bear to see them even. Of course, like begets like, and this hate was returned. Finally, I suffered from horrible delusions, and my room became haunted with demons that laughed and grimaced, and one night I ran into a whole cluster of them near the bed, and the fright stopped my heart and killed me. It's hate and remorse, as much as terror, that clogs me so thickly and keeps me here. If only someone could feel pity and sympathy, and perhaps a little love for me, I could get away and be happy. When you came this afternoon to see over the house, I watched you, and a little hope came to me for the first time. I saw you had courage, originality, resource love. If only I could touch your heart without frightening you, I knew I could perhaps tap that love you have stored up in your being there and thus borrow the wings for my escape. Now I must confess my heart began to ache a little as fear left me and the man's words sank their sad meaning into me. Still the whole affair was so incredible and so touched with unholy quality and the story of a woman's murder I had come to investigate had so obviously nothing to do with this thing that I felt myself in a kind of wild dream that seemed likely to stop at any moment and leave me somewhere in bed with a nightmare. Moreover, his words possessed me to such an extent that I found it impossible to reflect upon anything else at all or to consider adequately any ways or means of action or escape. I moved a little nearer to him in the gloom, horribly frightened, of course, but with the beginnings of a strange determination in my heart. You women, he continued, his voice plainly thrilling at my approach, you wonderful women to whom life often brings no opportunity of spending your great love. Oh, if you only could know how many of us simply yearn for it. It would save our souls if but you knew. Few might find the chance that you have now, but if you only spent your love freely, without definite object, just letting it flow openly for all who need, you would reach hundreds and thousands of souls like me and release us. Oh, madam, I ask you again to feel with me, to be kind and gentle, and if you can, to love me a little. My heart did leap within me, and this time the tears did come, for I could not restrain them. I laughed too, for the way he called me madam sounded so odd, here in this empty room at midnight in a London street. But my laughter stopped dead, 
and merged in a flood of weeping when I saw how my change of feeling affected him. He had left his place by the window and was kneeling on the floor at my feet, his hands stretched out towards me, and the first signs of a kind of glory about his head. Put your arms round me and kiss me. For the love of God, he cried, kiss me, oh, kiss me, and I shall be freed. You have done so much already. Now do this. I stuck there, hesitating, shaking, my determination on the verge of action, yet not quite able to compass it. But the terror had almost gone. Forget that I'm a man and you're a woman, he continued in the most beseeching voice I ever heard. Forget that I'm a ghost and come out boldly and press me to you with a great kiss and let your love flow into me. Forget yourself just for one minute and do a brave thing. Oh, love me, love me, love me and I shall be free The words, or the deep force they somehow released in the center of my being, stirred me profoundly, and an emotion infinitely greater than fear surged up over me and carried me with it across the edge of action. Without hesitation, I took two steps forward towards him where he knelt and held out my arms. Pity and love were in my heart at that moment, Genuine pity, I swear, and genuine love. I forgot myself and my little tremblings in a great desire to help another soul. I love you, poor, aching, unhappy thing. I love you, I cried through hot tears, and I am not the least bit afraid in the world. The man uttered a curious sound, like laughter, yet not laughter, and turned his face up to me. The light from the street below fell on it, but there was another light too, shining all round it that seemed to come from the eyes and skin. He rose to his feet and met me, and in that second I folded him to my breast and kissed him full on the lips again and again. All our pipes had gone out, and not even a skirt rustled in that dark studio as the storyteller paused a moment to steady her voice and put a hand softly up to her eyes before going on again. Now, what can I say, and how can I describe to you, all you skeptical men sitting there with pipes in your mouths, the amazing sensation I experienced of holding an intangible, impalpable thing so closely to my heart that it touched my body with equal pressure all the way down, and then melted away somewhere into my very being. For it was like seizing a rush of cool wind and feeling a touch of burning fire the moment it had struck its swift blow and passed on. A series of shocks ran all over and all through me, A momentary ecstasy of flaming sweetness and wonder thrilled down into me. My heart gave another great leap, and then I was alone. The room was empty. I turned on the gas and struck a match to prove it. All fear had left me, and something was singing round me in the air and in my heart like the joy of a spring morning in youth. 
Not all the devils or shadows or hauntings in the world could then have caused me a single tremor. I unlocked the door and went all over the dark house, even into the kitchen and cellar and up among the ghostly attics. But the house was empty. Something had left it. I lingered a short hour, analyzing, thinking, wondering. You can guess what and how, perhaps, but I won't detail, for I promised only essentials, remember, and then went out to sleep the remainder of the night in my own flat, locking the door behind me upon a house no longer haunted. But my uncle, Sir Henry, the owner of the house, required an account of my adventure, and of course I was in duty bound to give him some kind of a true story. Before I could begin, however, he held up his hand to stop me. First, he said, I wish to tell you a little deception I ventured to practice on you. So many people have been to that house and seen the ghost that I came to think the story acted on their imaginations, and I wished to make a better test. So I invented for their benefit another story, with the idea that if you did see anything, I could be sure it was not due merely to an excited imagination. Then what you told me about a woman having been murdered and all that was not the true story of the haunting? It was not. The true story is that a cousin of mine went mad in that house and killed himself in a fit of morbid terror following upon years of miserable hypochondriasis. It is his figure that investigators see. That explains then, I gasped. Explains what? I thought of that poor struggling soul longing all these years for escape and determined to keep my story for the present to myself. Explains, I mean, why I did not see the ghost of the murdered woman, I concluded. Precisely, said Sir Henry, and why, if you had seen anything, it would have had value, inasmuch as it could not have been caused by the imagination working upon a story you already knew. That was A Woman's Ghost Story by Algernon Blackwood, read by Kathy Chepesky. Our next gravedigger's tale requires not so much an introduction as an explanation. You see, some people hearing it for the first time today might think it was written this very year, 2020, and that it might be some sort of political satire befitting Anatole France about a certain country with a certain leader who has not been taking a certain plague as seriously as he certainly might. Rather, he might sound more interested in walling himself off, as it were, and pretending that the life of the filthy rich should be able to go on just as though nothing bad could, should, or would ever happen to anybody as smart and rich and beautiful as himself and his filthy rich friends. Well, the truth is, nothing could be further from the truth. The following story was written by Edgar Allan Poe and published in 1842. So no, and just to be clear, we are not taking a political shot at anybody. But as they say in show business, movie theaters, and the very best publishing houses, any resemblance to a real person is purely coincidental. Here is The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, read by Jeff Bowman. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal 
or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, would shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease, were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces with massive hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned with such precautions the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, and there was beauty, and there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of this seclusion, while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either end, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue.
but in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, and amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a giant clock of ebony, its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that in each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolution, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock would produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies. There came another chiming of the clock, and then with the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm and much of what has been seen since in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments, 
There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashion. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, and something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and out, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent save the voice of the clock. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the nearby clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on until at length there came the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told. And the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, expressive of disapprobation and surprise. Then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, 
seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dappled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was sprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed. In the first moment, with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which the Prince Prospero uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand. And now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him. So that unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterrupted. But with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, 
Summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of the revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay revelers. And the flames of the tripods expired and darkness and decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. That was The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, read by Jeff Bowman. Our last ghost story that completes our gravediggers' tales was written by Myla Jo Closser, an American writer who was born in 1880. She wrote one of the all-time best stories that also just happens to be a great ghost story. Still, it shouldn't scare anybody, nor give anyone real goosebumps, nor those heebie-jeebie shivers that sometimes run down your backbone or raise the hair on the back of your neck when you think you saw a real ghost or heard something go bump in the night. In fact, we'll bet that it will end up making you smile once you figure out who's actually doing the talking. Mind you, it still is a story about the afterlife, and it does deal with whatever incarnation happens after some old gravedigger is done doing his business. Still, it's meant to let us all sleep more soundly tonight. So here is At the Gate by Myla Jo Closser, read by Leslie Betts. A shaggy Airedale scented his way along the high road. He had not been there before, but he was guided by the trail of his brethren who had preceded him. He had gone unwillingly upon this journey, Yet with the perfect training of dogs, he had accepted it without complaint. The path had been lonely, and his heart would have failed him, traveling as he must without his people, had not these traces of countless dogs before him promised companionship of a sort at the end of the road. The landscape had appeared arid at first, for the translation from recent agony into freedom from pain had been so numbing in its swiftness that it was some time before he could fully appreciate the pleasant dog country through which he was passing. There were woods with leaves upon the ground through which to scurry, long grassy slopes for extended runs, and lakes into which he might plunge for sticks and bring them back to. But he did not complete his thought, for the boy was not with him. A little wave of homesickness possessed him, it made his mind easier to see far ahead a great gate as high as the heavens, wide enough for all. He understood that only man built such barriers, and by straining his eyes, he fancied he could discern humans passing through to whatever lay beyond. He broke into a run that he might the more quickly gain this enclosure made beautiful by men and women. But his thoughts outran his pace, and he remembered that he had left the family behind, and again this lovely new compound became not perfect, since it would lack the family. 
The scent of the dogs grew very strong now, and coming nearer, he discovered, to his astonishment, that of the myriads of those who had arrived ahead of him, thousands were still gathered on the outside of the portal. They sat in a wide circle, spreading out on each side of the entrance. Big, little, curly, handsome, mongrel, thoroughbred dogs of every age, complexion, and personality. All were apparently waiting for something, someone, and at the pad of the Airedale's feet on the hard road, they arose and looked in his direction. That the interest passed as soon as they discovered the newcomer to be a dog puzzled him. In his former dwelling place, a four-footed brother was greeted with enthusiasm when he was a friend, with suspicious diplomacy when a stranger, and with sharp reproof when he was an enemy. But never had he been utterly ignored. He remembered something that he had read many times on great buildings with lofty entrances. Dogs not admitted, the signs had said. And he feared that this might be the reason for the waiting circle outside the gate. It might be that this noble portal stood as the dividing line between mere dogs and humans. But he had been a member of the family, romping with them in the living room, sitting at meals with them in the dining room, going upstairs at night with them. And the thought that he was to be kept out would be unendurable. He despised the passive dogs. They should be treating a barrier after the fashion of their old country, leaping against it, barking and scratching the nicely painted door. He bounded up the last little hill to set them an example, for he was still full of the rebellion of the world. But he found no door to leap against. He could see beyond the entrance dear masses of people, yet no dog crossed the threshold. They continued in their patient ring, their gaze upon the winding road. He now advanced cautiously to examine the gate. It occurred to him that it must be fly time in this region, and he did not wish to make himself ridiculous before all these strangers by trying to bolt through an invisible mesh like the one that had baffled him when he was a little chap. Yet there were no screens, and despair entered his soul. What bitter punishment these poor beasts must have suffered before they learned to stay on this side of the arch that led to human beings. What had they done to merit this? Stolen bones troubled his conscience, runaway days, sleeping in the best chair until the key clicked in the lock. These were sins. At that moment, an English bull terrier, white with liver-colored spots and a jaunty manner, approached him, snuffling in a friendly way. No sooner had the bull terrier smelled his collar than he fell to expressing his joy at meeting him. The Airedale's reserve was quite thawed by this welcome, though he did not know just what to make of it. I know you, I know you, exclaimed the bull terrier, adding inconsequently, what's your name? Tam O'Shanter. They call me Tammy, was the answer, with a pardonable break in the voice. I know them, said the bull terrier. Nice folks. Best ever, said the Airedale, trying to be nonchalant and scratching a flea that was not there. I don't remember you. When did you know them? About 14 tags ago, when they were first married. We keep track of time here by the license tags. I had four. This is my first and only one. You were before my time, I guess. He felt young and shy. 
Come for a walk and tell me all about them, was his new friend's invitation. Aren't we allowed in there? asked Tam, looking toward the gate. Sure, you can go in whenever you want to. Some of us do at first, but we don't stay. Like it better outside? No, no, that isn't that. Then why are all you fellows hanging around here? Any old dog can see it's better beyond the arch. You see, we're waiting for our folks to come. The Airedale grasped it at once and nodded understandingly. I felt that way when I came along the road. It wouldn't be what it's supposed to be without them. It wouldn't be the perfect place. Not to us, said the bull terrier. Fine, I've stolen bones, but it must be that I've been forgiven if I'm to see them here again. It's the great good place, all right. But look here, he added as a new thought struck him. Did they wait for us? The older inhabitant coughed in slight embarrassment. <clears throat> the humans couldn't do that very well. It wouldn't be the thing to have them hang around outside for just a dog. Not dignified. Quite right, agreed Tam. I'm glad they go straight to their mansions. I'd, I'd hate to have them missing me as I'm missing them, he sighed. But then they wouldn't have to wait so long. Oh, well, they're getting on. Don't be discouraged, comforted the terrier. And in the meantime, it's like a big hotel in summer, watching the new arrivals. See, there's something doing now. All the dogs were aroused to excitement by a little figure making its way uncertainly up the last slope. Half of them started to meet it, crowding about in a loving, eager pack. Look out, don't scare it, cautioned the older animals, while the word was passed to those farthest from the gate. Quick, quick, a baby's come. Before they had entirely assembled, however, a gaunt yellow hound pushed through the crowd, gave one sniff at the small child, and with a yelp of joy crouched at its feet. The baby embraced the hound in recognition, and the two moved toward the gate. Just outside, the hound stopped to speak to an aristocratic St. Bernard who had been friendly. "'Sorry to leave you, old fella,' he said. "'But I'm going in to watch over the kid. You see, I'm all she has up here.' The bull terrier looked at the Airedale for appreciation. That's the way we do it, he said proudly. Yes, but... The Airedale put his head on one side in perplexity. Yes, but what? asked the guide. The dogs that don't have any people. The nobody's dogs. That's the best of all. Oh, everything is thought out here. Crouch down. You must be tired. And watch, said the bull terrier. Soon, they spied another small form making the turn in the road. He wore a Boy Scout's uniform, but he was a little fearful for all that, so new was this adventure. The dogs rose again and snuffled, but the better groomed of the circle held back, and in their place a pack of odds and ends of the company ran down to meet him. The Boy Scout was reassured by their friendly attitude, and after petting them impartially, he chose an old-fashioned black and tan, and the two passed in. Tam looked questioningly. They didn't know each other, he exclaimed. But they've always wanted to. That's one of the boys who used to beg for a dog, but his father wouldn't let him have one. So all our strays wait for just such little fellows to come along. Every boy gets a dog, every dog gets a master. 
I expect the boy's father would like to know that now, commented the Airedale. No doubt he thinks quite often, I wish I'd let him have a dog. The bull terrier laughed. <laughs> You're pretty near the earth yet, aren't you? Tam admitted it. I've a lot of sympathy with fathers and with boys, having them both in the family, and a mother as well. The bull terrier leaped up in astonishment. You don't mean to say they keep a boy? Sure, greatest boy on earth, ten this year. Well, well, this is news. I wish they'd kept a boy when I was there. The Airedale looked at his new friend intently. See here, who are you? he demanded. But the other hurried on. I used to run away from them just to play with a boy. They'd punish me and I always wanted to tell them it was their fault for not getting one. Who are you anyway? repeated Tam. Taking all this interest in me too. Whose dog were you? You've already guessed. I see it in your quivering snout. I'm the old dog that had to leave them about ten years ago. Their old dog, Bully? Yes, I'm Bully. They nosed each other with deeper affection, then strolled about the glades shoulder to shoulder. Bully the more eagerly pressed for news. Tell me, how are they getting along? Very well indeed. They've paid for the house. I... I suppose you occupy the kennel. No, they said they couldn't stand it to see another dog in your old place. Bully stopped to howl gently. Oh, that touches me. It's generous in you to tell it. To think they missed me. For a little while they went on in silence, but as evening fell and the light from the golden streets inside of the city gave the only glow to the scene, Bully grew nervous and suggested that they go back. We can't see so well at night, and I like to be pretty close to the path, especially toward morning, Tam assented. And I will point them out. You might not know them just at first. Oh, we know them. Sometimes the babies have so grown up they're rather hazy in their recollection of how we look. They think we're bigger than we are. But you can't fool us dogs. It's understood, said Tam cunningly, that when he or she arrives, you'll sort of make them feel at home while I wait for the boy. That's the best plan, assented Bully kindly. And if by any chance the little fellow should come first, there's been a lot of them this summer. Of course, you'll introduce me. I shall be proud to do it. And so, with muzzles sunk between their paws and with their eyes straining down the pilgrim's road, they wait outside the gate. That was At the Gate by Myla Jo Closser, read by Leslie Betts. We hope you enjoyed today's show, The Gravedigger's Tales, performed by the Opionga Readers Theatre and read by Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormkey. And we hope that if any of those stories sparked an interest in Anatole France, Guy de Montpassant, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Allan Poe, or Myla Jo Closser, that you will pay a visit to your local public library, especially our very own Madawaska Valley Public Library, and take out a volume or two of any one of those five past masters of classic ghost stories. But remember, if you do go to the library and get a chance to pass a graveyard near Halloween, especially during the evening twilight, don't forget to whistle past that graveyard. If not, wink if you see a gravedigger. And don't be surprised if he laughs back at you, a sort of ghoulish, bone-chilling laugh.
<laughs> I'm Kristen Marchand, and for the producer of the Alpianga line, Barry Conway, we would like to wish you a good day and God bless. <laughs>